Welcome back to another edition of the Bow Rush Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Stowe, and you're listening to episode 29. So we're now getting really into the pre-rut, rut, and post-rut phases of the hunting season for deer. And a lot of people have questions, but I wanted to do something different on this episode, so hopefully you'll enjoy it. I decided to have a campfire setting, so to speak. It was all on the phone, but instead of just having one guest on the line, I decided to have three guests, one being Andy Garcia, the other one is Graham Johnson, which happened to be on our last episode, and then someone that you've heard before, his name is Tommy Hale, and he was talking about the paper tuning and how it's still relevant for bows today. So all three of these guests, they were happy to share what they know in the regions that they live. It's not just in the eastern side. It's three separate locations in the United States and the tactics they use for the pre-rut, rut, peak rut, and post-rut. Now, being that there's three guests, you can imagine this is going to be quite a long episode, probably about an hour and a half, give or take. So hopefully you will be able to stick it out all the way through. It's great information. I hope you enjoy it. So let's get started. Hey guys, I uh, really appreciate each one of you to be on our show today, uh, And uh, but I'd like to have each one of you introduce yourself and kind of just give some information about who you are so the listeners kind of get an idea who they might be listening to, but uh, you know, let's start with you, Andy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Uh, honestly, I'm doing really well. I mean, it's Friday. It's the That's day right. before Halloween, and... Uh, that moon's uh, slow and going away. Yeah, yeah but the great part I like is that the weather's getting cool, and I'm liking that because that's what I love when this weather comes in, the fall weather. This is when I get excited. That's right. Anyway, uh, about me, I've been a wildlife biologist for 14 years down in South Texas. been hunting for probably 30 of those. So anyway, let's see what I can do to help listeners on the show. Awesome. I guess, uh, Graham, I, I, I know you personally, I've known you for a couple of years now, you're a good friend of mine and you live just down the road, but, uh, let, uh, in fact, you were on, uh, just the last episode, kind of giving some cool tips from a listener that called in with the questions, but, you know, maybe kind of give our listeners a little bit about who you are. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I'm always the best one to come to for answers, but, uh, no, I've uh, worked in the outdoor industry, hunting and fishing side as an account executive with a couple ad agencies for um, four or five years. Um, recently started my own thing with um, a pro staff tracking uh, system for the industry. You know, I love hunting, fishing, all that. It's a seasonal thing. But uh, yeah, I'm from just outside of Atlanta, you know, primarily bow hunting. You know, we do a little bit of public hand, public land rifle stuff. Um, most of my hunting's done suburban residential land. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, definitely, um, interesting, but I've hunted Texas and South Dakota and Mississippi and some of those areas as well. Uh, so yeah, look forward to it. Glad to be on the show. Awesome. And, uh, for people that have been listening to our show for a while now, uh, we actually have Tommy Hale and he was on one of our previous episodes talking about paper tuning, which a lot of people really did like. So he's got some great knowledge, uh, as well. I think this is going to be a really good one, but you know, Tommy, for the people that maybe haven't heard uh, you before, I kind of give a little bit of update who you are. All right. Well, I'm a school teacher now. I teach middle school science near the St. Louis area, but I grew up on a farm in central Missouri and I've been hunting and fishing most of my life except for a brief hiatus when I was on active duty military but you know I'm pretty avid outdoorsman again and spend a lot of time in the woods and mainly with my bow but you know of course when rifle season comes along I'm out there with everybody else so <laughs> awesome. I, and uh, like I, I believe it was Graham who said that 
you know, I may not be the best guy for answers, but I'm pretty sure I know how to hunt my farm pretty well. So I, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what I have to share can be uh, helpful to somebody. Well, I, honestly, my opinion is that everybody has something that they've learned, good, bad, or indifferent. And so even if something that you've learned, it whoever's listening can take what you're saying from a grain of salt, or if it does seem to have value, you know, apply it to their own hunting skills. And you know, it can help someone that might necessarily be in the same scenario that you're in. So uh, that's the cool part about this, allowing people to share. It really doesn't matter the true skill level because everybody's got skill level it just now it comes into how can someone apply it right yeah right. correct so i guess we can go right into the the first element you know the idea about this is we're getting into the phases of the rut i mean it's just starting to come through so we have the po or the pre uh the peak and then the post um but i guess we can dabble right into the uh pre-rut you know in your area the region that you live in, you know, how does it really affect? When does it really kick in? And some of the things that you might do to, um, you know, basically uh, capitalize on that time of the phase. And I guess we can, you know, start with Andy. Well, for us, our honey, our bow season starts down here around the first week of October, and that's kind of the beginning of our pre-rut. Bucks are still they're kind of broke up by their bachelor groups, and they're still kind of patternable for us. But uh, for what? For what works best for me on the pre-rut down here in South Texas is knowing that I know that deer lives in this country, and I'll be running cameras looking for him. And when I do find him, I'll go ahead and, you know, try and set up on him, either set up a bowline or tripod or something, because where I hunt, we don't have very many trees. The tallest thing we got for a tree is called a telephone pole. <laughs> but uh, that's, what we, that's what I like to do for pre-rut. I like to know, I like to pick one deer and go after him. To me, it's easier than trying to Go out there and shotgun try to find a, a good deer. So, anyway, that's that's how I hunt the pre-rut. I've hunted San Angelo before, which isn't really South Texas. I guess it's what uh, that's West Texas. West Texas. I would call that New Mexico. Yeah, it was pretty cool. <laughs> it was pretty cool. It was uh yeah. When they tell us in Texas, they're like, "Yeah, we got three thousand acres." I'm like, "What the hell do you do with three thousand acres?" <laughs> you get lots of deer. <laughs> right. You get a helicopter. Yeah, Texas. I mean, I've been on one ranch that's two hundred fifty thousand acres. I've been on the King Ranch that's eight hundred twenty-five thousand acres. That's right. Yeah, it's basically who's got the bigger <laughs> corn pile at that point, ain't it? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, how do you in the world do you scout for something like that? I mean, you think about it; it's just so much space. You obviously you have to have someone else do that all year long just to know what they're doing. No, well, what I'd like to do is I see the road as far as I can see, back up truck on a hill, and get my spotting scope out. I'd do it like out west, but down the road. Oh. Mm-hmm. I mean, I might have a road for two miles. So, I mean, hmm. I just get in the middle of it, look both ways in my spotting scope. That's usually how I do it, and I run the hell out of cameras. <laughs> I run yeah. 25, 30 cameras at a time. Jeez. Well, I'm happy just to even try to use two that I borrow. <laughs> <laughs> you had to figure out how to kill deer when we had clients coming. That makes sense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, you go from that much land to uh, the property I was hunting tonight uh, before this call uh, is about, it's 30 acres total, but it's about six acres that's actually huntable that's not field. Mm-hmm. So that makes it a little bit different because you <laughs> you can run one camera. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're going to walk in front of it eventually. Yeah, oh, yeah. scouting <laughs> takes about five minutes. <laughs> so. And he's not here. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. You pull up, look outside the window. No, nah, he's not there. All right, time yeah. to go. <laughs> okay. When you're saying you go after one, are you saying if in a uh, 
a herd of deer, you pretty much pick the one you're wanting to go after and you pretty much forget the rest of the bucks or, uh, and you're only going well, after that one specifically, or if something comes in, do you, you know, obviously adjust, but, uh, what do you mean by that? Right. Well, the ranches that I work on, we have our management plan, you know, we have our harvest criteria, you know, for one ranch I work for, you know, it's four-year-old eight, five-year-old under 130, and anything over six is considered trophy. So there's no sense in trying to find a big three-year-old. So I'm looking for those those deer that are old enough. And when I find that one deer, I'm running 20 or 30 cameras on a property. I will find those deer in certain areas, and then I'll set I'll set up just for those deer because they're easier they're easier to harvest kill early in the season for us. Okay. So I'll I'll focus a lot more energy in trying to get those kind of pick up. I guess you would call it target bucks would be a good way to describe it. All right. Or do you use any type of like calls or scents to attract them in, and if you, like, which kind that you do? Uh, well, the call that works best for us down there in South Texas, pretty rough. It's called a corn feeder. I know a lot of people think that's not fair. It's <laughs> cheating, but hey, if it's legal, property that's twenty thousand acres in size, and the widest area to hunt an animal is the road that's only ten foot wide. You got to get that animal on that road to get a clear shot. And a lot of times, unless they have a reason to step on that road, they're not going to stop on that road. So, And even then, you still got to deal with hogs, javelinas, other deer, cattle. So just because you throw a pile of corn in the ground doesn't mean it's a done deal. Right. It's just giving you a little bit more of an advantage for based on the, the distance that you have to try to cover. Yes. Right. Man, a one ranch could be 20 square miles. I totally get it. I I mean, I think that if if it's legal, then use what you're allowed to use to make sure you get what you're needing. And the end is that you're trying to get exactly. a deer. And so, yeah, makes sense. It's uh, it's it's corn is gold in some places. So that uh, I get it. Um, <laughs> what about you, Graham? Well, you know, there's a lot of similarities. Even though that that uh, Andy's hunting, you know, really wide open, huge pieces of land, and we're hunting small pieces here. Uh, you know, I try to do the same thing of focusing in on, on one deer. Uh, our season in Georgia opens roughly mid, mid September. Um, and just like in South Texas, well, it's probably hot for you guys all year round, but, uh, it's, it's pretty hot. I mean, you know, it's nineties, uh, you know, it's, it's, you're sweating in the deer stand and, you know, our deer are not really in pre-rut when the season comes in. Uh, they're still grouped up in the bachelor groups. So we focus on food sources, of course. Um, and then as the pre-rut really kind of rolls in, uh, you get some of the acorns dropping around here and we still focus on those food sources and try to pattern an individual deer, uh, you know, to the best of our ability. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer in hunting the does and, and when I say hunting the does, it's not only taking a doe, I try to take a doe, you know, earlier on in the season if I can, but it's really, it's, it's hunting the does and knowing I'm more so patterning the does all the way through pre-rut. So if I know where they move on the property, because their movements pretty much don't change around here. Uh, so I'm kind of prepping myself for the rut. If I've got a good buck on camera on, you know, I'm usually hunting between between 5 to 25, 30 acres. Uh, I've got some friends around here that hunt as little as an acre and a half, um, which I know it sounds crazy, but but you're pretty much if you don't have a good buck on camera you don't have a good buck on camera that's just the way it is you know you still put your time in in the stand 
but really I use that time of year to pattern the does to prep for the rut so that I kind of know where they're traveling on that small piece of property so that once the rut hits, you know, I know exactly where I need to be. Uh, if I do have a good deer, um, you know, focus on the food sources and, you know, wait on them to break apart from those bachelor groups. Um, it's actually, I find it easier around here to kill a big deer prior to the pre-rut in that kind of, you know, uh, very first part of the season because they are grouped up in the bachelor groups and they're much more patternable, um, that time of year. Once they start splitting up from the bachelor groups, they kind of get a little bit crazy and, uh, and it can get a little bit difficult at that point, uh, until the rut hits. You know, Tommy, how about where you're at? Well, you know, where I hunt, most of our land is tilled, you know, so we've got patches of, of woods that I don't necessarily have big patches of big woods as one might call it you know i think the biggest patch on the land on the piece of the farm that i focus on which i think is 180 acres of that 180 acres i think there are two patches of woods then one of them is about four and a half acres that's the biggest biggest patch of woods i have and then i have another one it's about three acres but what i do have is running directly north and south is a travel corridor that the deer use so kind of like what Graham was saying, I tend to focus on food sources. You know, I want to pattern, uh, the, like he said as well, the does. Because, you know, the old saying, if you find the does, you find the bucks. You know, you may not necessarily see the, the bucks early on on our farm because we only have one or two big bucks that, that tend to stay on the farm as far as our camera tells us. However, as soon as the rut comes in, though, if I know where those does are, I'll get in, in somewhere and I'll just sit tight in a place that I know that's had good activity based on the cameras and based on the neighbors, what they're telling me they're seeing as they're driving around. I will set up in one of those spots and just pretty much, you know, pack a lunch and do dawn to dark sits during the uh, rut. So, cause I'll never know who shows up. Funny is, you know, I'm in good communication with the neighbors on both sides of me. So, you know, we're swapping cards and swapping uh, pictures and talking. And excuse me. Uh, what I find is is that come rut, one of us inevitably ends up shooting a deer that nobody had on camera. You know, so <laughs> you, you know, going after that one. You know, I've got a neighbor just to the uh, south of me. He does that too. He he's able to, you know, say this is who I'm going after, and he's successful. But he, you know, he's got you know, a little bit different setup, even though literally it's across the gravel road. It's just the the topography and geography, I guess, of his farm is such that it holds deer really well so that he can do that, you know. And I'm connecting, you know, our farm connects between this farm and another farm. So what I get are the, the cruising bucks. So that's why we tend to see different deer. You know, one of his might show up on my camera or vice versa, but and up taking the deer that neither of us had on camera. I bet that kind of so, creates some uh, issues whenever like someone gets one of the deer that you're potentially like been after, but they get them because it happened to be on their property. You'd be like, no, 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 you were on my property. But no, 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 I was on mine. It came over to here. No, you, you know, it, I can see where somebody might think that, but, you know, everybody that's down there can be congratulatory and happy for each other when somebody gets a nice harvest. You know, it's it's pretty much a... A good job, buddy. Hey, you got him. You know, I'm, I'm going to get him next time. You know, and that's yeah. It's it's 
pretty congratulatory or congenial, you know, situation, you know, because everybody down there, you know, is where we are. We're pretty fortunate that, you know, not a lot of people are hunting it and everybody who is hunting it is like-minded. And, you know, we talk enough to where those that aren't necessarily like-minded or at least to her face are telling us that, you know, that, that they're coming around to trying to hunt the way we do. Yeah. Now, Travis, real quick, um, before we move on, um, Andy is a wildlife biologist. I mean, we, we, he just, you know, Tommy just made mention there of how far deer move, uh, especially during the <laughs> rut. I mean, I, I think I heard a oh, stat yeah. today, like 94 miles in 24 days or something crazy. I mean, oh, I believe it. Is is it? I mean, I've heard sometimes these these bucks putting in like five miles a day, no, no problem, um, you know. And I think that probably goes across from Texas to Missouri to Georgia, wherever you are. Uh, do you yeah, have? Yeah, I mean, the same everywhere. We had one deer. We called him uh, Blindside. He got poked in the eye when he was young, so he was blind in one eye. Well, every year, right about first of December, he just pick up and go clear across the ranch. In my there's probably six miles to where he'd go every year to to rut. Like everybody's saying, he was going for does, and there's always a lot of does on that part of the ranch. So he'd pick up and move over there for about two weeks. And then about, on the third week, he'd be back to the other stand. And about mid-January, when our second rut kicks off, boy, he'd be back over there. He'd be over there for two or three weeks, and he'd come right back. This deer did this every year, and he was so patternable, I had a blind set up for him. So when he did turn six years old, I, we didn't even hunt him until he went over there. You just you so, knew exactly yeah. when he was going to be there. I knew where he was going to be. <laughs> he was so he'd go to the same spot every year to chase does. We had a few deer that that would do that. That I would set the blind up for him. My hunter, the hunter to shoot that deer wouldn't come in until December, which is no problem. I had the blind set up waiting for him. When his time was right, the hunter was there. So was the deer. People would call me crazy, it's like Dude, he'll be here. Don't worry. <laughs> wow <laughs> you know the, one of the things that i've always questioned myself about is when it came into the pre-rut you know when is the most effective time to be in the woods early morning midday or afternoon or is it best to you know try to sit in stand the entire time um and depending on obviously the type of stand or if you're spotting stocking it, some people feel like well, it's time for lunch do you take to break or do you just you know uh, grind it through the whole entire day or is it more effective early mornings or midday or afternoon? Well, I think for the pre rut, they're going to be better off morning and evening. They're still kind of that summer pattern. So <laughs> y'all agree? No, a hundred percent. You know, and, and the thing is, is I like to hunt in the afternoons more early season than I do in the mornings. It's not that I don't necessarily see deer early morning, but, if I'm going to hunt early morning when they're still grouped up, when the does are, you know, still trailing fawns, and, I'm sorry, the fawns are still trailing does, and, you know, the bucks are still in bachelor groups, more often than not, if I'm going to hunt early morning, I'm going to try to help hunt a transition area off of food in between food and right. water and, and beds. You know, that that's the thing. You know, first of all, just the way my farm is set up, you can't hardly get to a stand without walking across where they're out feeding, you know? So in order to do that, you know, in order to even get to the deer, I'm going to kick them out of the country, you know, walking across there in the dark. 
So I'd much rather go in, and I like to get in the afternoon earlier than most. Just you know, even before you know, you know, we set the clocks back. I like to, you know, I'll get in the stand about two, two thirty, and sure I'm going well before the deer are, but I can rest pretty confident that you know I'm not going to spook anything. I, you know, I'm still going to be careful, but the, the premium isn't quite as there, and I can set up and read a book or do whatever I need to do until, until the action starts kicking up. And that, but like I say, that's when I'm going to hunt. Uh, the, the field edges for me is going to be the afternoon mornings. I'm going to try to get in and catch them coming off the fields, you know, on a transition, like in between their beds. That makes any sense. No, it does. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. Um, to the morning mornings and evenings and, and, you know, in our area here, it it's really strange lately. Uh, well, actually, not lately. I mean, really, every year that that you get like these week periods where okay, this week the mornings are hot, and then the next week the evenings are hot. Um, you know, like that's when you're seeing the deer. Uh, I just went and I hung a new set to, uh, the other day in the thickest, nastiest junk on my property. Uh, I mean, my maximum shot's like twenty yards, maybe. And uh, I sat it this evening and didn't see a single deer. Uh, so, you know, I know that next time, you know, maybe I need to sit a couple mornings in there and, and see, but I understand about, you know, busting them out. Um, you know, it just depends on, on, on where they're moving through. You know, I, I'm with you. I kind of, I like to hunt those transition areas between bedding areas and feeding grounds. Uh, if you can, um, you know, it's just judging the movement. And I mean, that's really, it's part of putting the time in, in the stand, even in the pre-run. I know a lot of guys get kind of bummed out and they're like, oh, I'm not really seeing that many deer I'm not seeing any good deer, whatever it may be. I mean, you got to put your time in in the stand and just kind of figure out what the best time of day is they're moving or, you know, running your cameras. I mean, Tom, uh, Andy, you say you run 30 cameras. I mean, I'm sure you pretty much know whether it's a morning or an evening deal. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know, what's funny is, is all my cameras are pretty much set up to where, you know, early season, I don't get much during daylight. But, but um, you know, most of my cameras, saying is, is the cameras are a great scouting tool for me but they're they can be just as frustrating as they are helpful to be perfectly honest with you sometimes because you know the, the, you get pretty discouraged when you go pull a card and you you know you've got oh man i've got 400 pictures on this card and you know 350 of them are in the dark you know and it's at 344 <laughs> in the morning you know it's like well that doesn't do me any good you know, you know, and then, then the pictures that I do get in daylight, it's like, oh, look, it's the same set of twin fawns, you know. Squirrel. I ran into that same issue, and I, I started using the last couple of years a, a, one of the time-lapse cameras, one of the day sixes, and I'm not plugging day six or anything, but it takes a takes a picture every five seconds from daylight to dark. And I'll put it up overlooking a wide area, whether it be a hardwood bottom or an open field. Um, and then, you know, from daylight to dark, it's taking a picture every five seconds. So I'll be able to review the footage and I kind of know and am able to dial in their travel patterns, um, even in the preseason, you know, early season, because I'm with you, we put out still cameras and it's, you know, I've got pictures of great bucks, but they're four o'clock in the morning and midnight, you know, and it's, it's frustrating, but you know, it's part of the game. So, I mean, I have started using the time-lapse and that does help out a little bit. Let me ask you this. How often do you have to pull that card, though? I feel like you would really, I mean, taking that many pictures, you'd, you'd fill up a, an SD yeah, card pretty like quick it. with it. 
Yeah, I um I think this camera takes up to like a thirty two gig card. Uh and then I will I'll buy two two thirty two gig cards and I'll check it about every two weeks. And um and I set it to where it skips um from ten AM to two PM. So it gives gotcha. me video from daylight to ten AM and then video from two PM to dark. And um oh, usually okay. about every two weeks and you know, just, just switch out the cards and it it does pretty well. I mean it, it you know, especially on field situations. I mean, you can put it up over a field before you even set a stand up in that preseason and, and you know, that pre-rut. And uh, you can tell, okay, well, the deer, you can, you know, narrow it down to within, like, feet of where the deer are coming out of the woods at. Uh, and you can just, you know, slip in there and get a stand in, and, and you, you already know exactly when they're going to be there. Well, that'd be useful. We kind of covered the, the pre. Now we're getting into the idea of the rut and peak rut period. And a lot of people, I, I know that's when it gets into the rut, that's where a lot of people think, well, I'm just going to, that's when I'm going to be my most active because the deer are, or at least the bucks are going to be more around. I can pull them in by either grunting or having the, the type of scent and pulling them, luring them in, so to speak. Uh, so I have a better opportunity, but obviously each region does things differently. And, uh, so I guess, you know, if we could, you know, Tommy, if you wouldn't mind, could you, uh, kind of get an idea of what you do when it comes into that period of time in the phase? Well, uh, you know, I've tried just about everything that a guy can try to hunt. And what I've come back to is being as simple as you can really. And I find that when you find the does, you find the bucks. And I know I keep saying that, but you know, that's, that where that's where that scouting and that, that pre-season, that, uh, I'm sorry, pre-rut phase is important to get your sets in, but not only is it important to get your sets in, then it's important to get your sets in right, you know, to make sure you're not educating the deer, you're not sitting in that stand too often, you know, and I have a couple of stands that, that, you know, I know are, are, are hot spots, like I could go set in right now, or let's say in late September, early October, and I'm going to see deer, but, but I may not, see the deer that I want to see or, you know, I, I'll tend to leave those alone, you know, and those also tend to be my most comfortable stands, you know, because those are the ones I'm probably going to be spending the most time in come rut. You know, I'm, like I said earlier, I like to find, you know, have a nice comfortable stand and get in it and stay there. I'm, you know, early on in my hunting career, I wasn't, you know, I was pretty fidgety. So sitting in that stand all day was, was uh, pretty tough for me, but these days, parking it in a, in a nice, comfortable stand all day sounds pretty appealing. So, <laughs> I, uh, I've got three little ones at home, man. So, so getting to sit in a nice, quiet spot all day is, is a is a good thing. But no, I uh, I'll get in there and uh, I'll sit all day usually, and and if I sit that stand for for a good good piece, I won't touch it again for another couple days. Just, just to, you know, let everything settle down in there in case something had happened. But, you know, the, the thing is, is, you know, the, they say, oh, the deer aren't eating. They're not thinking about eating. But, but my experience says otherwise. I've, I've got a stand that's, uh, in between a seven acre irrigation lake and a little two acre pond with a little strip of woods between it. And, and I like this, and that's on an 80-acre field that's usually corn or beans. So, you know, that's one of my favorite places to just sit all day because you're you're going to see something if you're there. 
you know, you may not see anything till 11 o'clock, but at 11 o'clock you might see all kinds. And that's the big thing for me, at, at least hunting, you know, the, the way our farm set up is, is to get the action to see the deer you want to have them pattern. And, and then you just got to be there. You know, you can't just go in there and sit for a cup and see anything and get down because that's, that's, you're probably limiting what you're going to see. Well, how do you, uh, like, what do you do as a, maybe a possible tip? Like, how do you handle the whole day? One to, for food wise. And two, when you got to go. Well, let's be honest. I could skip a meal or two anyway. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, honestly, I'll take snacks in with me. You know, I don't want to take in a whole bunch just because of, you know, you know, possible bathroom issues, but you know, I'll, I'll take in a couple cliff bars and, you know, a bottle of Gatorade and, and just sip on it all day, you know, and, you know, I'll take that bottle of Gatorade in and, and play games with myself just to, okay, let's, let's see how long I can, you know, make this bottle of Gatorade last. Just, you know, just so I'm a not drinking so much that I got to go to the bathroom or I'm getting uncomfortable and I'm moving around a lot, you know, but for me, the big thing is, is, is I just need something to do while I'm sitting there. Cause I'm not too good at sitting still. So, you know, if I've got a, you know, <laughs> I got a funny story, but, you know, I, I missed the biggest buck of my life because of a stupid handheld electronic Yahtzee game. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I did too, man. I, I, I was getting after it. I'm like, oh man, I, I'm going to beat my high score. I'm I'm playing the game of my life and electronic Yahtzee. And I look up and, and I'm like, oh yeah. And I look up and standing right in front of me is a big old Manny Doe. And a giant wide ten pointer is is on her tail, and they are, they came in from from a spot where I'd never had a deer come in on me, and I was pretty exposed, and there wasn't anything I could do about it. And, and I mean, she was probably fifteen yards from the stand, looking right at me. Oh wow! He's probably twenty five, coming right in on her, you know. And he he never even saw me, but I I popped up, you know. I mean, I tried. Well, I I probably jumped out of my, you know, I got so excited. <laughs> no. I stood up and grabbed my bow off the hanger. Of course, you know, she, she sees me, she, I get busted. So she busts out of there and away he goes with her. So I, I threw that stupid Yachi game out into the field, but I never found it. And I didn't even really look to be honest, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so dang mad at it. But, uh, no, but that's the thing for me though, man, is I just need to find a way to occupy the time. And, and I find a book is about the best way for me to do it. And I'm an avid reader anyway. So I pick out two or three books that I'm going to, I'm going to read during the season and I spray them down pretty well and throw them in a bag with a couple of scent wafers just to kind of kill any, or at least not necessarily kill, but put some cover scent on them. So they're not too stinky when I take them in, but <laughs> pretty much how I get through those all day sticks anyway. Well, you know, what, what about you, Andy? How's it, how's it going for you when it gets to the, the actual peak of the rut? Well, it's peak rut from there, rock and roll. Well, for rifle hunting, I like to corn a road, feed a road as far as I can see, get up on a hill with a spot and scope. I know that doe will stop in the corn. If that doe stops on that corn and feeds, that buck will too. But like everybody said, that's when you hunt the does. You got to find the area with the does. In between the pre-rut and rut, I'll start feeding areas that I know have a lot of does in. And there'll be areas we don't even harvest those out of it, just so we can pull bucks in. So I'll have this area that's already set up prior to the rut. And so once I get in that area, I'll have those roads fed, and I'll be sitting up on the 
his heels, and we'll start spotting the stock of these bucks. You know where that bedo is at? That buck's right behind her. And everybody knows, once they're on a doe, they're done. They're the easiest time to kill them. But uh, for bow hunting, it's the same kind of double. I find an area that has a lot of does in it. Set up a blind, and I rotate cameras a lot. I just pick some random spot. I'll be driving down the road and say, hey, this looks like a good spot. Up some corn, put a camera, and check it a couple of days. Nine times out of ten, I'll find something to stop on that corn. And I'll set up a, a pop-up, a tripod, and we'll hunt the deer right there. But only for a couple of days, because... After that, he's going to go somewhere else. So that's how we do it down in South Texas. So basically, you're, uh, you use the ground blinds and pretty much just like pods, a quick in and quick out kind of a deal, just temporary. Exactly. Pods. Okay. Yeah, we're not. I mean, if you hunt a deer for three days, he ain't showed up in three days, he's somewhere else. Do you have any of the issues based on the amount of property that you're having to you know cover over? You know, if you got to go, do you just pretty much walk outside, just uh, you know, let the let the thing fly, or or do you end up trying to like well, you know, cup it into a? Funny y'all say that. What we do, what I've started doing, probably about three or four years ago, is I started urinating in the areas that we hunt regularly. Every time we go check a camera, we're urinating. Every time we go do something. We urinating again. We got the deer to where they didn't bother them anymore. We we literally got them used to our state. Okay. So if the wind was wrong on the blind, we were cool. I would leave shirts, jackets. I mean, anything to make that blind state. So you basically so are it, making them feel more calm, as in the smell is exactly. not a threat. Right. So we could have a wrong wind for hunters. By God, we can go in there and get it done. No big deal. Very cool. Now, I was going to say, go along with Andy saying, you know, being a farm kid, I've been saying for years the best cover scent would be diesel fuel. You know, as crazy as it sounds, they're used to it. You know, I can't tell you how many times you, you, you're out in the field or, or you know, somebody's out combining, and, you know, you'll, be, you'll get right on top of a deer combining, and, and they don't spook, spook out into them. I mean, you're right on top of them. I mean, you hear about people hitting deer with combines all the time. So, I mean, it goes along with what Andy's saying. If they're used to a sound or a smell, it's, it's non-threatening to them, you know? Yeah, so that's the same thing. We'll hang, um, we'll actually go do a yard work, cut the grass and everything else, and hang a sweaty shirt in the woods. And every time you go, mm-hmm. check, go to check your trail camera, throw a new sweaty shirt in the woods. Grab the old one, take it home, wash it. Yep. And that way, come September... You know, when it's hot and you're you're trying to get in there and deer, you know, deer hunt, even though it's not rut yet, they're they don't really care as much. Put in that in perspective, I mean, the way it sounds, and this could just be potentially controversial, but the thought would be, you know, we're going after these wild animals, and then now applying everyday things like peeing or the motor oil or even like your dirty shirt, throwing it out there, you're you're giving these deer the ability of knowing that this is not a threat anymore. Would that be almost considered taming the animals into a more civilized uh, area where they feel adequate enough to trust? And if that is the case, uh, how does that apply into the ethics idea? Grant, it's not necessarily bad because you're using a tactic that's becoming very successful. But when it comes into like chasing the wild animal, how does that apply to it? What would you think your thoughts be on that? He's still got a lot of other senses other than his nose. Okay. That, that's my thought. I've never pet a wild deer. <laughs> yeah. yeah I took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> wild deer what? No. Okay. 
<laughs> no, and that's just it. I mean, it, it's not like you're taming them like it's the family dog. I mean, yeah. it's, right. you know, sure. I mean, they, they even sell those products like Nose Jammer and Evercom and those things to put them at ease. And I, I mean, I think what that's doing would be less controversial than, you know, some of these folks that are using a heck of a lot of, uh, you know, Doe Asterisk or Dominic Buck urine and, and all that stuff. I mean, to, to, to do something that gets them used to your presence, especially if you're hunting, like Graham's saying, small tracts of land. I mean, God, I, I, dude, I don't envy you, brother, because I don't even know how. That would stress me out just knowing that, okay, I'm going into a into pretty much the same spot every time I hunt. Like, I, I don't know if I would hunt as much, me personally, just because that would wig me out and I'd be second guessing myself. And that, well, you got the deer by name. I can tell you that much. You know, you know what the biggest problem is? And this is, um, this is kind of an interesting topic. Not, I know we're supposed to be talking about rut, but, um, old does. I hate old does. Um, Amen. I, I, in, in all honesty, they're harder to hunt than a mature buck. And and mm-hmm. a lot of people say I'm crazy because they're like, oh, yeah, a mature buck doesn't come out in daylight. I had an old doe last year, and I finally killed her. Thank God. Um, but she busted up more hunts. And literally this deer walked under my stand and was walking away at 70 yards. And she stopped. The wind was blowing from her to me. So she was upwind. And she turned and looked at me and just blew out the woods. It's that like six cents, and I mean, I, I, I have kind of a, a sore spot in my heart for old does. I can't stand them. <laughs> well, <laughs> Other than just to be old, those smart ones. <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> don't even have to be old. Just the smart ones, the one that busts your hunt every time. That's the first one that's going to get it. Yeah, exactly. And she blows. <laughs> I can handle her blowing at me once. If she blows at me a second time, she better not come in front of my stand again. I don't care if it's the rut, yeah. peak of the rut, whatever. She's going to catch an arrow. <laughs> And there's this clip-eared, we call her a clip-eared nanny doe. She's the clip-eared doe. And, and that doe is talked about across three different farms. Everybody hates her. Yeah, we've <laughs> got some more see. names for our uh, does around here, but I can't share them on a podcast. Yeah, I have to be bleeping. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it PG. Maybe PG-13. No, I tell you, here's the thing. Those big bucks that, that are smart, so smart and sm- so wily and, and learn to evade hunters. I tell you, they learn that from somewhere, you know, and, and they learn, learned a lot of that from, from their mothers that were, you know, raised them as fawns and up, you know, till they kicked them, you know, and, and you know, those, those, those do a good job of raising those fawns, you know, the ones that survived the yotes and everything else. But, you know, those, those are just as those older does are just as hard. Like you say, if not harder, anybody says that they're not hard to shoot out of their mind. Oh yeah, they got to never kill an old doe. Yeah, has anybody ever uh, did like a snort wheeze and actually had a successful uh, result where a deer, the the buck, you know, nose goes down and bolts right to you during the rut? (laughs) I mean, I have, but the thing is, is I think this is just me talking. So if you guys disagree, please chime in. But but I think too many people go into the woods and try to make too much noise. These aren't ducks we're calling here, man. They're, you know, yeah. I I don't like to make any kind of any kind of sense at all unless I've got something 
insight that's hung up or going away from me. You know, I uh, agree. I, I completely you know, agree. I mean, I, you know, it, it, it's weird. I, I hear stories around here of guys that, um, that have have luck with that uh with with you know rattling i know south texas you guys probably do some rattling down there mm-hmm. um our deer up here um which I, I guess i can kind of jump into the rut a little bit here because it's, it's really weird um our deer you know i can literally have someone hunting two miles away and their rut will be two weeks after mine or two weeks before mine uh, and I've heard from people that it's because of the different subspecies of deer that have been brought in, uh, you know, way back in the past from to the state of Georgia, you know, wherever they came from. And that's that's the reason. I don't know if that's true or not, um, but our rut is it, it, it's it's spotty. I mean, we've got guys right now that are posting from two counties over that they're they're, you know, hot on does they're chasing right now. And I've got nothing at my place. Um, so it really is completely different. And that being said, when it comes to calls, you know, there's some properties, uh, around here where a grunt call works really well. Uh, rattling works really well. My property, anytime I've ever grunted or rattled in the stand, I have not seen a deer that hunt. So pretty much I gave that up about two years ago. Hmm. You see, I've rattled in box, but I, I've Oh, man down, lost Tommy again. Yeah. Tommy, you there? Uh, no, I'm, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, what I was saying is that. Uh oh. It's about to be the Andy and Graham show. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy, are you sure you're there? Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm here, brother. You hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Are you using Ver- uh, Verizon Wireless? No. I actually do have Verizon. I think he does, yeah. <laughs> Hey, it works great hey. around here. Don't hate on my Verizon, all right? <laughs> I, I put it to you this way. I, I just switched to Verizon, and I miss Sprint. Well, yeah, Sprint's got that uh, calling. Can you hear me now? Good. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Tommy. Go ahead, Tommy. Or not. God dang it. <laughs> well, Andy, what do you have to say about calling? Yeah, we'll, we'll, get, back to, uh, we'll get back to Tommy here in a second. <laughs> <laughs> we don't really grunt or snort weeds at them. We do rattle, but for us, it's weird. You know, most of the properties I work on, they have a pretty good buck to doe ratio, and rattling for us is only for about two or three week period that it works. Other than that, you're just wasting time. And for us, our rut usually starts around the tenth of December, so about the fourteenth or fifteenth of December. If you hit horns, you better watch out. I mean, we were just messing around one day, me and the hunter were hit open Jeep. He said, I'm going to hit the horns for fun. I said, whatever, dude, just go for it. He starts hitting these horns, and this little two-year-old eight-point comes running right to the Jeep. I thought he was hopping in with us. Wow. <laughs> I mean, there's there's times that when that we rattle, it's insane. I've had, you know, six or seven bucks just circling around me, just trying to see what's going on. And, and from a guiding standpoint, I don't like to rattle because it's hard to make a decision in a second but i like to take people out and rattle to see the taxi get that let them see it in person and i've had bucks stop in front of me and kick dirt on me i mean they're they're so focused about that fight they're ready to come to a fight so that's that's our main calling technique down here hmm. do you have a, is there a certain period of like uh 
sequences that you do or like extended time or if you go you know 30 seconds off for a couple minutes back on for 30 seconds or do you have a where you're um, a bolt of a four or five minutes straight because i've heard many different ways depending on the distance i like the long and loud sequence you know i just hit the horn say that something shows up i say it ain't working i mean i might hit horns for 10 minutes straight and still have deer circling me huh. i don't have like i said five six different bucks just they come out of one row, look, kind of circle around. You can see them in the brush, come back up behind me, and then they circle back around. They're just trying to find the fight because they're so focused. But I, I'll hit the horns. I'll hit them for 10 minutes straight. Then my arms are jello after the fact. But when you got bucks coming in like that, it's just so awesome. Get, the hunter is just going crazy. Tommy, let's see if we can uh, get the, the sound on there. And, uh, what were you saying earlier? Well, I was saying that I, I, I will rattle a little bit, and I've never rattled in a big buck, I'll say that. I've rattled in a lot of baskets, you know, that are, you know, what, what I call basket bucks still inside the ears. or uh, you know, curious yearlings that'll come in and, and check you out. But um, more often than not, I haven't had too much luck with it. But Graham was kind of hitting on it. It just kind of depends on the farm because my buddy that lives across the gravel from me, he, uh, you know, he rattles in bucks all the time. I mean, he, he's a rattling fool and, you know, and, and it, it just kind of depends on the deer and how they behave within their bachelor group has been my experience. You know, we've got, um, you know, like, you know, you're talking about the rut being at different times, you know, we've got last weekend, the, the bows, uh, I'm sorry, the does were getting, getting nudged by buck quite a bit. You know, they're already running them pretty hard where we are. You know, so, you know, our rifle season's always the, the second weekend in November and it goes for 11 days. And usually by the time rifle season starts, the peak of the rut is kind of dwindling down. So, you know, being a bow hunter, I don't know. I mean, as far as using a bunch of calls, I've just never had a ton of success with it. The only, only real success I've had was when I had a buck that was walking away from me one time i hit the snort wheeze at him and he turned around and came back in on me you know ears back ready you know you know he thought he got challenged you know by that snort wheeze (laughs) that happened to be the way i i got uh my biggest buck and and here in georgia there's people that have massive ones but i felt very successful for what i was able to get and it happened to be with a snort wheeze as well and that's why i was kind of curious of you know, has there been people that have had success with it? I happen to have it with the Snortwees, and I think I butchered it like you wouldn't believe. But uh, sure enough, he, so. yeah, most likely, and like yeah. everything else. But uh, <laughs> he uh, he he was just starting to drift away and just did a little uh, Snortwees to him and completely turned around and bolted about 20 yards trying to find me. And I had a clear, clean shot, and it was the, I think, the probably the coolest moment that I've had hunting in a very long time because it, it felt like to me I did something successful and applying a tactic that I was listening and trying to give it uh, a test and sure enough it worked. See, Travis, the, uh, uh, I guess I'll share my um, uh, my learning experience story uh, and y'all keep the laughter to a minimum, please. Uh, so, <laughs> 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 uh, I had decided not to use calls anymore. And uh, I had a big eight pointer on camera and, uh, you know, he was probably, well, big for around here. Um, you know, he was 135, 140 inch eight pointer, which by eight pointer standards, that's, that's, that's a pretty good deer. Um, 
And uh, I saw him one morning, and he was well out of bow range, and uh, he just kind of cruised up a hillside up into a thicket and didn't think anything about it. Now, he had some buddies that were with him that, you know, I, I would have shot. They were pretty solid little deer, uh, weren't as good as him. And about five minutes later, um, his buddies come crashing, you know, a doe comes crashing out of the thicket, and there's a deer behind him, behind her. And, uh, and I stop him. And, and I shot him at like 15, 20 yards. You know, he was, he was a decent deer. He wasn't the, the, he wasn't as big as the other eight, but you know, the other eight wasn't behind a doe when he came out. So I didn't think anything of it. Um, so I'm shaking like a leaf, of course. Um, if you ever lose that, you're in trouble. Uh, shaking like a leaf. It's cold. It's like, you know, 10 degrees that morning or whatever. And, um, I'm talking to my buddy on the phone, telling him about the shot. You know, he's on his way out to help me track. Uh, and I hear something running and I turn around and look and there's the big eight and he's at 20 yards Oh man! and I look down at my bow and I've got no arrow, nothing knocked whatsoever. Oh, wow. So that was one of those situations where one, I learned that, you know, just because you see them, uh, you know, they don't respond to calls well on my property. So you saw them once. It's not the end of the world. They're likely to come back through, especially during the rut. Cause they just get stupid. Um, and then I also learned to, even though you shot one buck, go on and knock another arrow, uh, because you might have an opportunity at number two. I, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. I remember, uh, it seems like every time I've gotten a doe and it wasn't really a lot of the buck because where I've hunted, I usually don't see a lot of bucks all together. It's usually just one a season, but, uh, there's a lot of does and it seems to be after I do get a doe down, 10 minutes later, even less than that, it's almost like another doe's coming around or a group of them. And, um, if you don't have one knocked and you're almost missing another opportunity. Yeah, man, there ain't nothing better than a live decoy, you know, (laughs) and and, and that's, that's a fact. I mean, and I'll tell you during, during late, you know, during a, you know, rut i guess and even into gun season if i shoot a doe i'll let her lay as long as it's cold enough i just let her lay because more than likely something's going to come up and check her out because she's she's laying there smelling like a deer you know what i mean that's mm-hmm. about the best best deer scent i think you could put out to a real deer you know that's a great idea so. i never even thought about that yeah i've done that <laughs> where i dropped the doe that was in heat put her in the middle of the road and by God, you just use her as a, as a decoy. Bucks will come in and check her. They'll nudge on her and stuff. And they'll, that's not a shoe. That's, oh, that's a shoe. Let him have it. <laughs> have, you guys, have you guys ever collected pee from a from a doe kill? No. No, not me. <laughs> it sounds weird. I, I've got friends that have done it. Um, and, you know, it's uh, it, it sounds crazy. Um, but, it's, I mean, it's very, you know, very similar with um, – I, I know a lot of guys will – if they shoot a smaller buck or something like that, like, cause we've got a lot of hunting clubs around here and in a hunting club during the rut or during pre-rut when they're fighting, they're pissed. Um, they'll, uh, they'll, if somebody shoots a smaller buck, it's like a fight to get the tarsal glands off that buck and they'll go hang them in the woods just to make the dominant buck mad. Mm-hmm. Now I use, I'll use tarsal glands. I've, I've definitely done that, but you know, to collect it out of a doe, I mean, I, I can definitely see the value in it. I just, I don't know that I have that kind of motivation. (laughs) (laughs) If you, if you got the Gatorade bottle, you can at least pump it in there. (laughs) Well, personally I haven't done it, but you know, it's a, I I hunt a piece of property right now that it's like, 
we're on the verge of losing the property due to it being sold. So I'm kind mm -hmm. of on the fence. Ruts coming up. Those are kind of starting to get there. You know, I want meat in the freezer. So the next time I hunt, you know, of course I want a buck. I don't want to shoot a doe right now, but we might lose the property and then I'm out, you know, everything. So if I do shoot a doe and she's hot, my buddy was like, yeah, just, you know, he's like, you know, get the pee from her. And I was like, what? You know, really? Why not? Just, It'd probably yeah. work. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Just something to throw out there. That's something you subcontract out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. well you know we got the uh the pre-rut we got into the rut uh and the peak but now we're, the rut's over we're going into the post-rut and uh i've it seems like some even here in georgia depending on where you're at it might be just starting or it's already gone but you know how do you capitalize on that you know that it's gone the bucks aren't going to be as active you know do you do you still go after them? Or are you going just like more back into the doe uh, mentality where that's what you'll probably go after more? Or is there things that you can do to still try to capitalize on the rut itself? And, um, you know, what's been effective? Uh, I guess we can go with Tommy cause we, we kind of, we, uh, we, we put you last, last time just because of the technical issues, but let's see what you got to say on this one. You know, for me again, and this is Midwest farm kid talking, I just go back to food to be honest with you. It goes back for me, and this is just my personal style of hunting. I'm, you know, I, I like to shoot a nice buck, it, you know, given the opportunity. But I'm I'm out there to be hunting as much as I am anything, and you know, hunting ain't killing. It's just about being out there for me. So, you know, I kind my excitement level is directly tied to the rut. I think, you know, because once that that uh, you know, the the peak of the rut is over and and the chasing has stopped, you know, I, I'll go back to hunting food sources. I pretty much take the same approach during, uh, you know, post rut as I do pre rut, you know, hunting, hunting, uh, food sources and hunting fronts. That's kind of the way I like to do it. A lot of folks focus on the moon and, and there's definitely a lot to that, but, but I find, you know, for, for our place, it's more of a, it's based on weather patterns, you know, and I'll, I'll base my hunting, around pretty much trying to get hunt on the day or the days leading into a big front coming in. And then on the days that that front's moving out and I always, you know, hunt food sources then because, you know, I find it doesn't really matter if it's a cold front coming in or if it's a warm front coming in, if there's a big change in air pressure for me, I've noticed that gets the deer up on their feet. So, so that's what, uh, I'll do, do you, you know, and, do you ever have like a the the second cycle? Like, does it ever happen uh, in your area? And I mean, oh that... yeah, oh yeah. I mean, you'll definitely, you know, everybody will be, you know, you'll see the do the does will tend to group back up first. You know where we are. The the does will pretty much when the rut's over and the dust is settled, the does the does will go back to their their old patterns before the bucks do. At least it seems like to me. Um, and they, uh, you know, they'll get back in their big groups and they'll start going on that feeding pattern, but it's not uncommon to see a big group of does out and have, have a buck come after them. Usually when I see that, it's a younger buck doing that, you know, three year old or younger that's uh, out there busting up groups of does late. But yeah, I mean, those, you know, they're, they're young and randy, so they're, they're out there ready. <laughs> Trying to get whatever's left before it's uh, too late. Exactly. And we get a lot of late bred does though. Granted, you know, you ask well, about 
that, uh, you know, late rut that comes through, you know, we get a lot of late bred does because, you know, we'll, a lot of late fawns, you know, like, you know, especially out, uh, you know, early season, you know, here's the fawns that are, they're clearly fawns, but then you'll see, you'll see Bambi walking around, you know, you, they still got spots on them. So it, it's definitely, you know, a, a fawn that was born a month or so later than what the rest of them were. Oh, so I guess based on when they are actually born really does affect when they become in heat and ready. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. And, and like, so I thought it was more of a, 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 like a community thing where, you know, it's when you have them all packed together, they become one, one goes, they all go together. But, uh, well, I think the bucks, well, I'm sorry, let me, let me backtrack there. What I'm saying is I think the bucks, some of the bucks will stay, stay ruddy longer than the does do. Now, I shot a late season doe last year with my rifle, and she was, well, she was stinky. You know, she was, she was still pretty much in heat, and this was in December, you know. So, I mean, as far as Missouri rut goes, that's, that's a little bit late, you know. Okay. You know, Andy's just getting started down there at that point, but. <laughs> yeah. But for, for us, I mean, it's pretty much by December 1st. You know, actually, I'd even say by the by Thanksgiving, really, usually the rutting activity is all but done. Okay. Well, like, uh, so yours is pretty much ending on that part, and then you're talking about Andy. Yours is you know, just picking up. I mean, how do you handle it? Well, a rut really peaks around first of December, second week of December, and then right around Christmas. Some parts of South Texas are still going. Some are already kind of coming out, but. When the when we go into our post rut, the bucks are hungry. They've been chasing does for two or three weeks straight. They've been up all day, all day, so they're hungry, they're thirsty. They want to take it easy for a little while. But like y'all were saying, second cycle, well, we get that January rut. We also get a February rut. Oh wow! So, so we get to go. We get to do our rut hunting three times. Wait, a minute, you get to hunt even I, in yeah. February? We have some ranches get to hunt to the end of February. Oh my gosh! And I've seen bucks chasing does in March. Just depends on the year. It's crazy, but I mean, post rut bucks are hungry. They got to try and put that body weight on. They got to kind of nurse their wounds. They got so they got to eat. So they'll be they're gonna go back to their morning afternoon patterns. They might chase an odd doe here and there, but they're they're building back up because they're gonna have to do it again in a few more weeks. So here we are back in a rut pattern in January. And then they'll do that post rut again. And then they'll do it in February because our doe fawns, if they're born early enough and they get to about 70 or 80, 80% of their body weight that first year, they will come into heat in February. And that is the most intense rut you've ever seen in your life. You might see one little doe fawn run across the road and nine or ten bucks behind. Wow. And that's when a lot of our deer actually fight, lock up, and we find them dead in the, in the spring. Now, Over do you, do you get to use – Route your bow through the entire season, or are there sections? I know we I think can. there's sections where you can only do bow, and then there's rifle, and then back to bow. Or can you do it all the way through? It depends on the ranch, but if the ranch can hunt to the end of February, you can hunt with bow all the way to the end of February. Very cool. Or you can hunt with rifle all the way to the end of February. So it just depends on your preference. Okay. But like Tommy said, post rut, bucks are hungry. They're going back to food. Well, Graham, being in Georgia, you're saying we always have, depending on where you're at, it either starts and ends later. How have you capitalized in that? Well, I've got a big problem with the post rut. Uh, it's called duck season. 
<laughs> so you, um, just, <laughs> you change up the hunting period. Have, though, brother. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the post-rut is our coldest time of the year in Georgia. But that being said, uh, I, you know, made – I've had several pictures of big deer on camera, uh, you know, while I've been out on the water duck hunting. Uh, so it's it's difficult me on personal level because I like duck hunt. But there's – you know – uh tommy i heard you talking about that you said a lot of the smaller bucks are the ones that are pushing does and stuff like that post for you guys uh it's kind of the opposite here a lot of uh, the the general kind of rule around here is that some of our biggest bucks come into rut uh you know in that mid our, our rut typically ends uh late november uh early december and uh a lot of our biggest bucks come into rut in um in the december time frame you know, they'll, they'll say, you know, if there's, you know, four or five, uh, three and a half year old bucks on the property, then, you know, your four and a half, five year old buck is the one that's going to be coming in a rut late. So, you know, our, our rut typically a lot of times has, has some of the younger bucks as the ones that are running. Now that's not to say that the bigger bucks aren't killed uh, and that they're not running, but it's, it's kind of one of those, you know, you gotta, you, you gotta kind of stick it out to the end. You really do. And, and, you know, during the rut, the one thing I tell people is like, you got to put the most time in the stand possible. If you're on the does, it, it's just a matter of time. So put the time in the stand. Now, when it comes down to it's getting cold outside, uh, and that's when guys have trouble putting that, that, those long hours in the stand, especially because our cover's gone here. Uh, you know, we, mm-hmm. all the leaves are off the trees and they're, you know, the acorns are gone it's the food sources are depleted and it gets very difficult in that time of year to to get one within bow range you know so i don't have a lot of experience in post rut because i'm usually on the water but uh i have had pictures of some really good deer post uh, you know post rut when they're really getting fire up well i kind of go into uh the the last real thing that i'd love to know about is you know lessons learned the things, I, Graham, you've already kind of given us a really good example of something that you've uh, you've learned over time. But uh, something that you've done and you've realized either you wanted to try it and you completely failed. Maybe you've done it a couple of times and realized it was just a waste of time, and so you don't do it anymore. You know, I guess we can go back around in a circle, even though we can't see anybody. Let's just try with uh, Andy. I mean, what was it like a lesson learned that you've done multiple times? You said, you know, what? it's just not anymore. That it was a waste of time. Ah, uh, well. When the buck bombs first came out, you know that aerosol can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we go spray it on the bush and just kind of go drive a road as far as you can. Looks just kind of spray it on the bush every hundred yards or whatever. And just see what happened, boy. The bucks you'd see them running back and forth on that road looking for that bush. But that was the first year. The second year, I don't know if you got used to it or so they changed the formula. It just ever since that first year, it hadn't been as effective. I'm not saying. It, for me, I don't know about everybody else, but that was one thing I quit buying. We first tried that, and we saw the results. And we'd go down to our academy, and we bought every can they had. We had a shopping cart full of that stuff, and they looked at us like we were crazy. But I mean, we put some deer on the ground with that with those buck bombs. But then after that, they didn't work. We just kind of saved our money. We back through the ways. Yeah, I've heard even here, uh, some guys I went hunting with, every time we'd go in the stand, uh, we got down, and if we didn't see anything, he's like, yeah, I put a, a buck bomb out, and I, every time I kept hearing that, I they we've never had a result, and I, I've never even bought one because I never thought they were that effective. Personally, uh-huh. just because of the people I've heard here never had success with it. Yeah, that's weird. I mean, they worked awesome the first. I wouldn't do the whole can. I just kind of go up to the bush and kind of give a two or three second burst just so you could see some some of the liquid dripping off the leaves. 
and just kind of go down the road spraying this stuff every hundred yards or so. I mean, bucks would walk out to that road. Bucks I've never even seen before would walk out and smell that bush. So we thought they were greatest things in sliced bread. But after that first year, it's just, it was just kind <laughs> of a waste of time. Well, um, Tommy, what about you? Oh, man. I, oh, boy, I tell you what, if there's a gimmick out there, I probably fell for it at one point or another. Um, you know what I've gotten away from? You know, the the big thing for me that I focus on that I am, you know, very militant about is my scent control. And, you know, and I still have debates with my good buddies and, you know, I'm sure they'll listen to this and they'll give me a hard time about it. But, you know, I want to smell absolutely nothing when I get, you know, and fresh earth, uh, flavored, uh, you know, cover sprays and all that stuff. And, you know, and that's great, you know, sure. I'm, I, and, and, and these guys do well with it. But I want, I want the woods to smell exactly like it did before I got there, because I feel like from my experiences, it's taught me that the less I smell like anything, the more deer I see. And, and I don't just necessarily mean, you know, my scent lock suit and my base layers. And well, I've, I've gone to Under Armour, I switched, but you know, with all my Under Armour, everything, you know, I'm I'm pretty confident with the way I take care of that stuff that, that my scent control is tight. So why do I want to mess that up by putting a fresh earth cover spray on me? Wait, no, when you talk about the you go really in depth with the scent control. No I know that I. I try to. I think I do an okay job, but I, I know I slack it sometimes where I'll throw it in uh, stuff, get it washed up, and I'll take it out, and I'll come back. I'll wear it to the field. I might get gas. I will, When I come home, mm-hmm. I'm wearing it inside the house. I take it out, and I put Wrong. it in a box. And, but then, <laughs> and so when I get back out, I might spray it down a couple more times, but I start realizing, like, am I really being that effective? And I, in my back of my mind, I was like, should I be putting this stuff in a, a plastic container or something before? and after I get into the field uh, or where, and I've heard some people say like they won't even wear it until they get to the tree stand. And then they like, they have a complete extra bag to put their clothes on. And there's some hardcore people when it comes to that. And I've never, I've kind of been slack on it. Now, that, case in point, I don't think I've ever got as much deer as I could have, but uh, I, I don't know how effective I've been with it. Well, Travis, if you got five minutes, I'll happily expound upon it. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's real simple, brother. For me, the more careful I am with my scent control, the better off I am. And, you know, my dad, you know, daddy picks on me for, oh, man, you know, you know, I'll go out there and shoot a deer and, you know, coveralls and a flannel shirt. Well, good for you, dad. But, you know, you, you know, it's, it's a little different situation. Almost every deer he shot, it's been because he's got, you know, he got off a tractor and shot it, you know. It's, <laughs> it's, it, it doesn't quite work the same way, you know. And, and for me, you know, just getting to come down and hunt here and there, the more careful I am, the better I am, the more, more deer I see just plain and simple. So what I'll do is, you know, you talk about wearing it to the field. I mean, the, I, I mean, and please take no offense, but the idea of that just, just makes my head spin because <laughs> I'm no offense at all. <laughs> you know, like I, I will drive to the stand in my base layers and like, if I'm going to, and I, I take careful preparation like, like the weekend I'm going hunting, you know, I'm, I'm leaving the house for the weekend. I pack a cooler with all the, the sodas or monsters and five hour energies and cliff bars and apples and bananas and whatever I'm going to take into the stand with me for, you know, munchies. 
um, I'll get all that ready. You know, I got all that already and I will gas my truck up when I get to the farm or get, get, you know, the town nearest to the farm, I gas my truck up, I fill it up. So I don't need to worry about going into the gas station at some awkward point. You know, that's all completely taken care of. You know, it's just that little bit of, you know, that's as much as part of the hunt for me as actually climbing the tree and, and drawing down on a deer. It's all that pre-hunt prep work to me that makes the difference. And I think that's where a lot of guys fall down. I agree. That. But, I, know, I, you, I think that's almost something I, when we had our first conversation in the previous podcast, I think I got that from you is that you like removing variables. I do. I do. I don't like moving parts where there doesn't need to be. Yeah. And, and I get it. And I think that I, I know for a fact how I was brought up in raising into hunting. This is how it kind of worked for me is that even at a young age, how I learned was that we were in our suits, uh, our clothing, we would go to Waffle House and have the best type of food you can possibly think that you have to use the bathroom 10 minutes after leaving and drive an hour away to the property and with a guy that's in, in the your car boots, smoking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, that's how I was brought. I was raised up thinking that's you know perfectly fine. And even for years, I never even thought about scent. I think I got into where they're like, well, you know, rub some stuff around you and then we put some dirt. And But we never really wasn't into that much on the scent. So I didn't have that backing of the feeling it was helpful. And it maybe I could very well be losing all these multiple types of opportunities. And I think it's just because of my going back into my normal routine. I feel like I'm, I, I know I'm lazy with it. Well, and I think if you're a public land hunter, it's even more important than, than for me on the farm. And, and that's kind of what my daddy gets after me about, you know, he's like, Oh man, you know, these deer are used to lately smell it. And he might be right. But at the same time, I noticed the more careful I got, the more deer I saw. And it, it was that easy. Um, but you know, like I, what I do is I'll wear a base layer, you know, and I'll drive in in a base layer, you know, and I'm, you know, it might seem a little weird that you're driving in and you're, you're underwear. To underwear. <laughs> yeah. but, but at the same time, you know, that's why I get gas before, you know, so I don't have to stop at the gas station, get funny looks from an old lady when she sees me pull up, you know, but, uh, <laughs> I could just imagine scratching yourself or something. And someone's like, what winking at me or something like I'm taking, ma'am, I'm sorry. But I bet but you no, there's I, probably other hunters like, I got you. I know what you're doing. <laughs> right, man. And, and I, 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 I bought a pair of clogs literally or Crocs rather, you know, just, you know, not for the fashion of them, mind you, but because they're, they're easy, <laughs> easy to, easy to wear. You know, I, I'll get dressed, you know, I'll take my scent free shower. I get dressed. I, I spray down before I put on my clothes. I, uh, I like an unscented powder too. You know, you know, they said uh, there's a uh, scent control, uh, you know, powders out there, you know, antimicrobial stuff. Yeah. Like, I like that. And that also makes it a little easier to peel those layers off after you've been wearing them all day. But, uh, you know, I'll put that on, put, put a layer on. Um, I have seat covers in my truck that I use only during deer season. You know, I take them off after every weekend hunt and run them through the washing machine just because, you know, my pickup picks up some smells just from the days of driving around in it when I'm not hunting. And, yeah. You know, and <laughs> Andy's laughing. He knows what I'm talking about. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and then, uh, but I keep all my stuff in a, in a scent lock container, you know, and it's, it's a, an airtight, you know, I think, I think it is, I think Plano makes it, but it's a, it's an airtight scent, 
you know, scent free container. I, I got on Black Friday a few years ago for like fifteen bucks or something. <laughs> nice. I got a couple of them actually, but uh, no, I keep all my stuff in there. And, and and yeah, it might be cold. It might be twelve degrees when I'm getting into the stand, but uh, you know, I'm moving around and I'm not going to be in my in my base layer for long. And you know, I put on a layer, I spray down. And then I, you know, I, I get geared up and last thing I do is I put on my harness and, and open my bow case and away we go, you know, and I spray down and I use uh one thing that I do use for scent control that I don't think a lot of guys do is, you know, or I know some guys that'll spray their bow with, uh, you know, they'll spray their bow and their quiver and everything with the, you know, the, you know, just the whatever brand they're using the scent away or whatever. <laughs> But I, I don't like doing that because it gets that weird residue build up on it. And I don't know if it's a fat. Mm-hmm. I mean, and residues building up on moving parts. It makes me nervous. I use, uh, I just use, uh, there's a, just a scent free, uh, oh, dang it. What's the brand? Uh, nose jammer, uh, those nose jammer wipes. And I just wipe my bow down, you know, when I, uh, put it away the night before, you know. You know, when I'm done with the hunt, I wipe it down so I don't have to mess with it in the morning. You know, I just grab it and go. But I don't touch anything without a gloved hand on. That's the other thing. First thing I put on is my gloves because, you know, sure, I took that scent-free shower, but I was holding on to that, that steering wheel the whole time I was there. I put a dip in on my way in, you know. So, I mean, you know, the first thing I do is I, as I, you know, I put my gloves on. That's the first thing that goes on. Okay. Yeah. I don't mean to interrupt. I have to tell you a story before I forget. When you talked about the dip, a buddy of ours, um, Scott Nelson, he he's actually part of the show, but he, um, him and I were going hunting one morning, and uh, he had tobacco, uh, chewing tobacco on. He, he Throughout the whole entire hunt, he constantly was spitting into a cup. And he had two separate cups, one to drink and one to spit. And so by no, the time we were no. leaving to come back, yep, the uh, it basically you can see the cup from that he was drinking from was almost as full or empty as the cup that he was spitting in. And he forgot and took not just a sip, a gulp of what he was spitting in. It, his face turned completely green. We had to pull over because he was about to puke. So one yeah. of his lessons learned was that he was going to use two separate types of bottles. And I made a comment. I was like, well, good thing it was just that and not pee. Because I do this thing. I have a pee bottle. And I was like, I've had one time where I had two of the same thing. And it was late at night. And I had a pee bottle. And I wasn't sure if which one was which. And I had to figure out which one was warmer to know which one I was actually going to use. <laughs> Hey, those come in handy for natural hand warmers now, okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not gonna lie. <laughs> I tell you what, for for our, our nicotine addicted friends such as myself, I'm not proud of it, but I am. You know, I found a fantastic product that gets me through those all day sits and that is not Nicorette gum because that's too hard to open with gloved hands, but and it's too expensive. Those little camel snooses, you know, you pop one of those things in and you don't have to spit and keeps your mouth kind of moist so i don't find myself needing to take a drink as often as i'm sitting there oh wow but nor do i feel that you know nor will i have any any danger of spitting or taking a drink out of the wrong cup yeah (laughs) that's true well well, you know uh graham i know you gave us a a kind of lesson learned but i mean do you have one more that maybe you've done that you knew that uh, you done in the past and realized it wasn't effective and uh you you scrapped it you're not doing it anymore um, well, yeah, I've got an interesting deal here. Um, 
and 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 Tommy, don't hate me, okay? Um, Go for it, brother. <laughs> the scent control with our uh, suburban deer. Uh, I'm not saying scent control is not an issue. I mean, I wear a scent lock. I spray down everything I can do. Um, but I don't have the option of changing clothes in a neighborhood driveway. Uh, it's just not really conducive to the soccer moms living next door. Uh, I don't need to get any phone calls or um, unwanted uh, attention. Um, so, you know, I've kind of got to wear my stuff to the stand. Now, you know, I do I do keep like jack I, I, I you know, tone it down to the least amount of clothing I can wear, but usually it's pants and the and my base layer shirt. Uh, so, you know, the the scent on the deer around here, they're dealing with with kids walking through the woods, people walking their dog. Literally last year, I was sitting in my stand and I looked up and it was a Friday afternoon at like four o'clock, and there's some dude walking his pomeranian through the woods and he's wearing nothing but a bathrobe, and I'm like. You know, first thought that came to my mind was who walks her Pomeranian through the woods in a bathrobe at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday? So (laughs) there's there's scent all the way in the woods. Now, the biggest thing our deer pick up on is going to be movement. And and um, I you know, we actually have deer that will look up in trees, uh, which kind of sucks sometimes. Um, (laughs) Especially when you're at full draw. Yeah. Yeah. No, literally they'll walk in and they'll, they'll have their heads up, which it, you know, it's, it's difficult. So, you know, the biggest thing with me is when it gets cold, um, you know, we have some mornings we hunt around here, they're 10 to 20 degrees. And for a Georgia boy, that's pretty freaking cold. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's my feet always get freezing, always freeze. I don't care how many grams of thin slate I got in my boots, whatever they freeze. Um, so last year to keep myself where I can stay in the stand for long enough, you know, to hunt, especially during the rut. Um, I started strapping, uh, two sweatshirts to my backpack when I go in. And, uh, when I get in the stand, I will wrap the sweatshirts around my feet, but to the point where I can move, you know, enough to stand up and, and rotate around if I need to. Uh, and that's just that extra warmth on my feet to keep me still, uh, where I can hunt out those really cold mornings. That's a uh, and, you know, that's it. It sounds crazy because you're thinking, why would you wrap something around your feet? Uh, you know, if you if you if you open up the bottom of the sweatshirt where you would normally put your hand, head in and stick your feet in there, and then wrap another sweatshirt on top of that, you can surprisingly move it around and fidget your way around enough to you know very quietly and easily get a shot off, and it keeps your feet that much warmer. Which strange tip I know, but hey, it works for me. No, it's awesome. <laughs> Graham, if I may, I got I got two thoughts for you on that that will significantly warm your feet in the stand. Okay. As, as a fat kid, here's a thought. Have you ever – okay, like, um, you know, you know, I used to be a gym rat in, in a previous life. You know the, those rubber uh, mats, like those puzzle pieces, like that – like you can get that. I think they sell them at Harbor Freight for like four square feet of them for like nine dollars. Yeah. If you get those things and cut and trim those, put those on the platform of your stand. What that'll do is it gets your feet up off the metal, and that metal's what's cold. It's just sapping, you know, that heat transfer is going on there, man. You know, it's it's just that you know the heat moves from an area of of colder to or warmer to colder, right? So so it's it's literally it's pulling that heat energy out of your feet. So if you put that, that layer of, of like that rubber matting down, you know, you can sock up and, and do all that and toasty toes yourself to death. But, 
you know, if you're still setting those, those feet on top of a metal plate, you're kind of, I don't want to say you're defeating the purpose, but you're limiting what the rest of the things you're doing is. Makes perfect uh, sense. The efficacy of it. You take it's almost taking the same concept of when people go backpacking and they're getting off the ground from the, the sleeping bag. They usually get a sleeping pad that gives about an inch off or so. Exactly. And yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a really good. And, and the other thought is is about it is it quiets you down because you you might have you know your your boots. I mean, you got the heavy clogs and tread on there, brother. They're gonna you know if you and if it was a little wet walking in, maybe you picked up a little mud. I know I've sat in the stands before where, you know, I've had mud on my bottom of my, or the soles of my boots that are, you know, drying up and falling down. You know, it, it quiets you down a lot. I mean, a lot in the stand. You'd be amazed how much quieter it makes you. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I definitely have to try that this year for sure. I I, I want to get the, I've heard rave reviews about the Thermocell heated insoles, but that gum, 130 bucks, I just can't, uh, I haven't brought myself to it yet. You know what, dude? Toasty toes and the right socks. What what yeah. I think most people do wrong is they try to oversock. I think you're better off undersocking because when you stop and think about the way way a blanket works, you know the blanket itself doesn't produce warmth; it just traps your heat in, right? So, and, and then in order for your, your you to stay warm, your extremities to stay warm, you got to be able to have that blood flowing around, right? So, a lot of guys will put on these heavy, thick wool socks and. And they go buy their boots, and they buy it from some guy at the, and no offense again to the box stores, but if you heard the previous podcast, I'm not a fan. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, they, with I'm with you. They go in there, and it's like, oh, man, this boot feels right. And they go in, they try it on with, you know, whatever kind of sock they wore to work. And, you know, a lot of times for a lot of guys, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a thin dress sock or it's a maybe a cotton athletic sock, and they put a boot on. It's like, oh, my God, this thing feels loose. You know, well, you, you got to put on a, a, a heavy sock to feel what what that really feels like. And if it feels snug when you put it on, it's wrong. You know, it, it, you need to have that extra space in that sock and, and, or in that boot, even with that sock. I like to go with a liner sock. You know, we, you know, I was talking to my friend Mark Van Meter the other day about this very thing, and. You know, we were talking about uh, how, you know, feet get cold, and, and, and I work on it. Man, that's something I still struggle with. Here in Missouri, it gets it gets cold, dude. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to act like we're Michigan or anything, but it gets cold. And, <laughs> you know, I sat in a stand on days where the wind chill was, you know, 20 below. Oh, and, <laughs> and those it, numbers don't even exist. Negative nope. numbers. That's all you, brother. You yeah. That, <laughs> that'll be at home. All that day on account of cold. <laughs> but, but here's the thing man if, if, if i drive an hour away or an hour and a half away and leave my my pretty wife and three kids by themselves to go climb a tree then by god i'm gonna climb a tree and, and do my best to come home with something you know and oh. and, and that's and, and it is what it is and usually on really really cold days is when i'm gonna see a ton of that it's like god if, if i'm uncomfortable with all this technology i've got think about what this animal's got it what it's feeling like and they got, in order to stay alive and to stay warm, you know, Andy, you know, the wildlife biologist can probably chime in better on this, but, but, but that gum, they got to eat, they got to get calories just to stay alive, you know, and, that's and right. that's where they're, and they're going to be on their feet. You know, if it's that cold, they're going to be on their feet all day long. And I found, you know, you can get to, don't matter what time you get to the stand, you're going to see some deer at some point that day. 
on those yeah. really cold days. Well, but, the one, but, the one day sorry. I did go out last year and I did stay warm, uh, and I did see deer, uh, and it was a uh, probably about seven degrees that morning. It was one of our coldest days of the year. Call me crazy, and I know scent control is a total issue with this, but I wore my duck hunting waders to the stand. I didn't care. It was that cold. I layered up. I wore 1,600-gram thin slate, you know, 5-millimeter neoprene duck hunting waders right to the stand. I sprayed them down the best I could, and I still saw deer. <laughs> but, that, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. No, but, now, but I'm talking about those feet, though, man. You put a, get a good liner sock. Get some sort of synthetic fiber liner sock. With a merino wool, I like merino. That's what got me through before I started putting them, them rubber mats down on the stands. Shoot, then after that, boy, I could sit there all day. Hmm. You know, but, I'm but, definitely gonna have to give it a try. Well, guys, you know we're getting to. Uh, I this has been an awesome, awesome episode. I hope that the listeners, when they get this, they're going to be blown away by it. And um, but you know, before we end it, if we can just throw really something great as in. Do you, if you have something you want to say that maybe you didn't get a chance to say out that you might want to let the listeners know that you maybe you've learned and you would like them to know to try? I mean, uh, each one of you have something you might can say. That would be awesome before we close this out. Like, Andy, if you could go start that. Well, I mean, like everybody said, when it's a rut, I think you need to be out there all day long. Because that bug's going to be out there looking for those somewhere, sometime. And if you're on your couch, you ain't going to kill them. That's just a hands-down fact. But in the rut, I mean, even I'll put in, we do our all-day hunts times during the rut. We'll leave the ranch to the house at seven, you know, daylight, and we won't come back till dark. Because you got to be in it to win it. That's, that's about the only thing I can throw in right now. Okay. Uh, Tommy? Man, I, I got a couple quick things. And, and number one, there's a lot of guys probably listening to your podcast that, that are really looking for some information and tips. And there is no better place to do it as far as I'm concerned. We've got this Facebook forum called uh, Blue Collar Bow Hunting. And it's, it's, uh, run by, uh, by a few guys that are fantastic guys that work hard every day to make it a great page. And Andy Garcia and myself are two of them, but the founder and owner of the page is Mark T. Van Meter and, uh, Michael Todd Fox and young guy who's really learning a lot and, and teaching us some things or two as well as a guy. Very named energetic Mike young guy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know what? Those are the administrators of that page. I'm telling you something. If you're not a member of Blue Collar Bow Hunting, look it up on Facebook. Check us out. You will not be disappointed. I would agree. I mean, in fact, that's how I met yeah, both you, Andy, and Tommy. Yeah, there's a wealth of knowledge that I'm still learning on that page. I've been chunking arrows for 20 years now, and I'm still learning. Well, uh, Graham, how about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm going to kind of go with what Andy was saying about putting time in the stand. Um, you know, uh, around here I've got, last year I had, uh, one decent buck on camera and I mean, during the rut, you put this time in and you know, I've got seven bucks that show up. You never know when that deer is going to show up. They're out there, they're covering a lot of ground, they're moving. Uh, if you've got any opportunity, you know, I know a lot of guys can't do the all day sits, you know, for me, I, I like to get out in the morning during the week before work it's a little bit quieter during the week it's not as much traffic around um you know and just if you can put in two or three days a week during the rut you're going to be a lot better off if you're if you're out there fighting the crowds on the weekends if you're hunting especially if you're hunting public piece of property or if you're hunting a private land uh that's that's like a hunting club 
you know, everybody and their brother is out there on the weekend. So try to get that time in during the week if you're able to. Uh, you know, you're going to you're gonna find that piece of property hunts totally different during the week than it does on a Saturday. Well, guys, you know, Andy, Tommy, Graham, uh, this has been a great episode. And this is the first one I've done that had multiple people in a, a crowd of campfire settings. So I hope that people have enjoyed this. But I do appreciate each, each of you coming on, sharing what you know about when it comes to the rut. And um, thank you so much. I think, uh, one, I definitely learned a lot from this, and I hope the listeners did too. This is a lot of fun. Oh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I had a blast too. Well, man, uh, again, it's been a pleasure. And um, yeah, I, if this turns out and people really like it, I hope to have more of these type of uh, episodes because I, this was a lot. It was cool. It, was, it allowed everybody to have different types of conversations, and it worked out great to my mind. Wow, I this was a great episode. I know it was an hour and a half long. It's a little bit longer than we normally do for an episode. And if you were able to stick it all the way through, I'm sure you probably were able to accept or learn something from each one of them that you might be able to apply in your hunting scenario for this hunting season. Guys, I do appreciate each and every one of you taking the time listening to our show. In fact, some of you might be unaware that on our website, we have this little plugin that will allow you to be directly from your website, not on a mobile device, but on a computer. You can send us a direct message, a verbal message, maybe if you have a question or if you just want to say what you like about our show. We love hearing from you. So, you know, take some time. Go to our website, mybowrush.com. You'll be able to see right on the home page on the right hand side, it says, Send a voice message to the Bowrush podcast. I'd love to hear from you. It'd be something new that we've added. We want to test it out to see if people are going to be engaging with it. We've already started getting some calls from it. We really think it's a, a cool idea, allowing us to engage with our audience a little bit more than just by the Facebook social networks. But um, give it a shot. We'd really appreciate it. Now, we have a iTunes account, which most of you are probably listening to it from this. And if you go to mybowrush forward slash iTunes, it'll take you right to our page on iTunes. We'd appreciate if you can have a five-star review if you felt our show has value and leave us a comment as well. That We love seeing and reading what people have to say about the show. Right now, we have about 14, 15 comments and we're growing. It's only been a year since we've really started. So seeing these numbers slowly get more and more, it makes us feel like, we're doing something right and uh, we're happy about that and this coming up year we're going to be doing some cool new things I'll talk about it in the next episode I know I've already taken your time for uh, a lot longer than normal but um, next episode we're going to get into what we're going to be doing for the following year and it's pretty exciting stuff but um over the past few weeks, we've been getting a few comments asking, you know, when are we going to be more engaging in Instagram and Twitter? Because people are slowly starting to follow those, but they're not that interactive at the moment for us. We just we don't have that much time to invest in trying to build those social networks. We want to, but we just want, well, I'll give you for example, Instagram, it's heavily involved with photos. And as you know, we are an audio-based podcast currently. We're going to be doing some video work soon on product reviews. Again, those are things I'll talk about later. But in providing content for Instagram, those photos, those little video segments, that takes time. Things that it's just it's so much involved that we could really use your help with. And what I mean by that is if you have a successful hunt that you've done recently, you, your spouse, um, or even your sibling, and you want to share it, 
send us that information, send us a photo, send us some details. We will add that to our Instagram page. You will be helping us contribute to our growth and exposure in Instagram. And that's a wonderful thing because it's not just about us. The whole point about our our show is not about us. It's about you. And we want to allow people to share their knowledge so you have the ability to take what you think you can apply that's the whole reason why we call it mybowrush.com. And it's the Bow Rush podcast, but it's my Bow Rush, not being me, but you. So if you want, send us some of your photos. We'd love to see it. We'd love to know the story. We'd love to share it. We'll put it on Facebook. We'll put it on Twitter. We'll put it on Instagram. And I think it'll be great. So let's give that a round. And we're going to see how that works out for the next few weeks. Um, maybe next year we might be able to find someone to help us out and help build up those elements. But uh, right at the moment, with being that it is the hunting season, I'm heavily involved wanting to be out there. I also have to do work with building websites. I'm also helping people in fitness and helping them lose weight, which I've talked about before. So you know, my, my time is pretty stretched, but I always want to devote as much possible time I can with this show. But the first part is going to be the audio segments because that's where I feel we can contribute the most value value currently. And, um, but guys, again, I do appreciate you taking the time, listening to our podcast, coming back, giving us reviews and sharing some of your information. It's wonderful. Um, I think I'm going to end it there. I can't wait for our next episode to come out. I hope that you will tune in and listen to that one as well. But I think until then, I'm Travis Doe, your host of the Bow Rush podcast. I'm out of here.